Well, this is, um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the 11th step and um, which is the step one of my obsessive compulsive friends said, there are more words in the 11th step than any other step. He counted them all. He gets very excited about things like that. Um, but there's a couple of things here that, that I want to uh, talk about. One is we're talking about prayer and meditation, which are tools, tools to use, prayer and meditation. And we talk about conscious contact of God as we understand God. And I would suggest this. I think it says conscious contact, not emotional contact. Every so often I get a sense of the presence of a power greater than myself. Sometimes you can feel that in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes you can feel that with certain music. Sometimes you can see that, feel it if you see something that's extraordinarily beautiful or, or you know, the, the birth of your first grandchild. I mean, there's experiences, I've, I've, I've been told, that you really feel something present. Well, this is conscious contact. This is asking us to not just to be aware of the presence of a power greater than ourselves, but to remember that we're aware of a power greater than ourselves. Remember. Be aware. One of the uh, women I've read on occasion is a, a woman in long recovery, and her name was Susan B. Anthony. Uh, this was the grandniece of the Susan B. Anthony, who was the great fighter for votes for women in the 19th and early 20th century. And I admire Susan B. Anthony a lot because of her doggedness and her, her um, focus and her fight. Um, Susan B. Anthony grew up in upstate New York and uh, a lot was going on when she was a little girl. Some of what was going on, of course, was abolition. Um, uh, the slavery stuff was big. Also, temperance. The, the, some of the groups, some of the, a lot of the, the abolitionists were also prohibitionists. And Susan B. Anthony, when she was a young girl, went with a friend of hers to uh, a prohibitionist temperance gathering, and everyone got a chance to talk on this. And it was a room full of cigar-smoking men, and she wanted to speak, and they would not let a woman speak in the assembly quoting St. Paul. And she came home from that and told her father, this will never happen to me again. I will never be shut up again. And she began a lifetime of public speaking. But lots of times she was talking to groups of women trying to raise consciousness and then she'd go to, to political rallies and do a lot of stuff. And she spent, and the numbers here, I should have these written down so I got them exactly, but she did this for over 40 years. And for something like 30 or 35 years, every year in Congress, a resolution was introduced to give women the vote. And for the first three, four, five, or six years, it was never let out of committee. The first time it was introduced, it was laughed at. But they introduced it again and again and again and again. In 1905-1906, Susan B. Anthony cornered President Teddy Roosevelt and said, Mr. President, votes for women. And he said, oh, you're such a radical, Susan B. Anthony. America's not ready for votes for women. But she was fearless. Now, they did that every year for years. And she dies before women get the vote. Now, the next time you think things aren't going your way, you think of Susan B. Anthony. She had a, a lifetime of uphill struggle. Um, conscious contact with God, that's what... The awareness that somehow God is present. There's a, a Victorian Jesuit poet, uh, an Englishman who taught Greek and Latin to boys in Ireland. For years, the poet's name is Jared Manley Hopkins. And Hopkins will write the first line of one of his poems is, the world 
is charged with the grandeur of God. It's like a, an electric pulse, you know. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. And if you have the eyes to see, you can look around and see God everywhere. That's conscious contact. In the sunrise, in the sunset, in the, the life of things, in the death of things, God is present. Conscious contact. Praying only for knowledge of God's will for us. And as I mentioned, I think God's will for us is for each of us to have a life. Uh, and that means some work, some creativity. Some family things, some friend things, some creativity things, some enjoyment things. Having a life. Be alive. Praying for knowledge of that and the power to carry that out. To do it. And I guess this morning in this last talk, I want to talk a little bit about the doing. Uh, the doing of some prayer and meditation. Again, there's a long history to this. And you're going to find people do things in so many different ways. There's different traditions. There's different ways people approach this. In some religious traditions, people pray standing. In some religious traditions, people pray sitting. In some religious traditions, people pray uh, kneeling. Um, some people, when they pray, uh, sing. Some people, when they pray, breathe. Some people, when they pray, read. You've got to find your own way of doing this. What I would suggest is if, if you want to be taught, there are places that teach this. A billion books are, are uh, read. A billion books are written. Churches will teach this sometimes. Um, meditation centers will teach this sometimes. Prayer and meditation. Here's a few things I'd like to suggest about it. Number one, keep it simple. It's easy to get very complicated on a lot of these things. So you have your, uh, I, I know people who, who uh, at home have a whole altar constructed. Incense and candles and pictures and things and books and stuff and flowers. That's wonderful, but what happens if you travel a lot? It's not easy to take all that with you. Keep it simple. Um, some of us use books. Find books that work for you. Find books that speak for you. Well, which book should I get? Well, trial and error. You're going to have to see. Uh, Al-Anon has some meditation books. The first one I used for a long time was called Odat, One Day at a Time. It's blue cover. And I found it very useful, Odat. And then another Al-Anon Al book came out called Courage to Change. And that also is a useful book. Hazelton has a million meditation books. They're all kind of a thought for the day or one or two or three thoughts for a day. So you have like June 20th and then you have a little quotation and then a paragraph of reflections and then maybe another quotation and that's the thought for the day. Lots of people use stuff like that. In the Latin church there are readings every day. There's an Old Testament reading and a psalm and then something from one of the Gospels. You could use that. Uh, some people will pick up the New Testament or the Old Testament and just go through it one chapter a day starting with Genesis and ending with Revelation. You can do that. There are websites of prayer and meditation. And a lot of these are quite wonderful. The Irish Jesuits have a website, and, and they propose some meditation and some prayer every day. There are so many sources. But the footwork is to actually find some that you use.
My tendency is to own the complete set of meditation books and use none of them. That's my tendency. But they sure look pretty, you know. Oh, I need a blue one. Do you have a blue one? Um, have one or two or three or four that you use regularly. I have a friend in the Northwest. He's a priest in recovery. He's a German background. You know? um, and he uses five meditation books every day in exactly the same order every day. He's a German. You know, this is how they do things. Everything is organized. And I've seen it, and it's it just, it just a regular part of his day. He doesn't argue about it or debate it, or he just does it on a regular basis. And he finds that the morning is usually a pretty good time for him. It's not just what you use, it's when. The timing is important. Some of us use mornings best. Some of us use afternoons best. And for some of us, it's evenings. You've got to find what works for you. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Keep it regular. Some of us, because we cannot be perfect, don't start this at all. Well, I don't have time for an hour and a half meditation three times a day. Well... Who does? Who does? Do you have any time at all in the day? Well, I'm so busy. I know we're all busy. One of my friends is a sober alcoholic, priest, compulsive overeater, military family. Everything you could want in dysfunction, you know, is right there with him. And he, he did the retreat for uh, priests in recovery last year, and he was very, very fine in his presentations. And he said, in terms of prayer and meditation, remember this, a little dab will do you. You just need a little bit. You just need a little bit. You don't need huge amounts. Just a little bit is a great start. And he also says this. He says this about the steps but it also, I think, is really, really true with prayer and meditation. The steps start us where we are right now. Right exactly where we are right now. So does prayer and meditation. I begin that as I am right now. I have a tendency to say, but I'm such a disappointment and I'm such a failure and I'm such a goofball. I'm not fit to pray or meditate right now. If I evolve a little bit and grow up a little bit and become more decent and adult, then I'll pray. Then you'll never pray. We get to start as we are, where we are, keep it simple, keep it brief. And slowly let this grow. Prayer and meditation for a lot of us is organic. It grows. Start with three minutes in the morning. Maybe three minutes in the evening. Do that every day for a month. And then go to four minutes in the morning. And four minutes in the evening. Do that every day for a month. Then go to five. Maybe work up to 10 or 15, slowly over time. And in that time, make it very clear, this is prayer and meditation. It's unique. It's different. It's not like the rest of the day. It's not willpower. It's not study. It's prayer and meditation. And before prayer and meditation before any spiritual exercise, ask God for help. God help me pray. God help me meditate. Now I want to make a confession to you. And please don't repeat this. There are times when I would rather watch Judge Judy than pray and meditate. I think it's going to be boring. I think it's going to be foolish. I think it's going to be stupid. I'll talk. I can talk myself out of it so easily. And there's something on TV. Oh, look. Oh, look, Judge Judy. You know? In fact, this is another tiny confession. For a while, I wasn't really calling my sponsor all that much. 
and I realized that I was probably using Judge Judy as my sponsor too. And I don't recommend that. I think that's, uh, you want to have someone else. Although she may be in the program, I don't know. Prayer and meditation. Ask God for help. Keep it simple. Keep it regular. So it's an ordinary thing, not an extraordinary thing. Now, in the Western Church, over the centuries, uh, a distortion came into our way of thinking. And here's the distortion. If you wanted to pray or meditate, if you were drawn to that, if you felt a need for that, you were expected to go into the monastery. Prayer and meditation, this is the distortion, was not for ordinary people. It sure wasn't for moms or dads, because they're busy. But if you wanted to pray, if you wanted to meditate, if you wanted to develop a conscious contact with a power greater than yourself, you went into the monastery. You became a monk or you became a sister. And one of the great truths of recovery is everyone's call to prayer and meditation. Whether, especially if you're a mom or a dad. You know? A very sincere prayer. Oh God, help me not kill my children today. You know? Sometimes, when we pray or meditate, it feels good. Sometimes when we pray or meditate, it doesn't feel good. I want to talk about that for a second. Because again, the, the fantasy is it will always feel good. The reality is a lot of times it doesn't. It's a discipline. It's an exercise like a vigorous walk or swimming 30 laps or going for a run. And if you are someone who's ever exercised, you know there are a thousand times you can talk yourself out of exercise. Prayer and meditation is like that. It's easy to talk ourselves out of it. There are times you look forward to the exercise. There are times you dread doing the exercise. There are times doing the exercise you feel great. There are times it is so difficult. That's right. Physical exercise, spiritual exercise, very similar. Loyola... Ignatius Loyola will write about this, so will a, a remarkable woman named Teresa of Avila and another very intense Spaniard named John of the Cross, Juan de la Cruz. Monks! Uh, 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 Ignatius was not a monk, but uh, Teresa was a sister and John of the Cross was a monk. They took their prayer lives very seriously. Although, one of the things I like about Teresa of Avila is she was in the monastery for 20 years before she took it seriously. She said she just fooled around for 20 years. Uh, I like that in a girl. Um, and then she had an awakening. And she started taking this very seriously. And she found, and others found, that uh, the experience of, of two words, one is the experience of consolation, and one is the experience of desolation. Two words. Consolation. The spiritual exercise, prayer, meditation, chant, being at a meeting, Prayer, meditation, being at a meeting, any spiritual exercise, it feels good. It feels sweet. It feels happy. It's interesting. Have you ever been to an AA meeting that's really interesting? I have. Consolation. Good people are talking. Interesting things are being said. And the time buzzes by and suddenly the hour is up. We're the hour. What a great meeting. Recently I've been to meetings like that. At the end of the meeting, there's at my home group meeting, I always sit next to this one person. Now this is not gossip, this is history. Some of us have checkered pasts and this particular friend of mine spent years deeply paranoid. 
ran a little bit with some cocaine salesmen, so this may have contributed to the paranoia, maybe. But it's still with her, and if, if there's an event, she always shows up really early to check out the room, and she always makes sure that she's near the door and that no one can get up behind her. Now, she's been sober 30 years, and she's still doing this. Anyway, she was very paranoid for a long time going to meetings, and I was one of the very few safe people that was in her world, so I would always sit next to her at meetings because it was a little safer, and she, she had such um, anxiety. Well, we still do this years later, uh, like an old married couple, and... Um, uh, I sit next to her, and at the end of the meeting, if I like the meeting, I turn to her and I say, that was not a bad meeting. And then she'll agree or not agree. Consolation. Interesting people talking, interesting things said. The hour goes by without drama. To every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We know that. But we don't think that applies to the spiritual life, and it does. It's the law. So feeling connected, feeling part of, feeling perky, feeling interested, feeling enlivened, feeling joyous, feeling refreshed. You go back to a meeting and you hate everybody in the room. Idiots are talking. They're talking nonsense. And the meeting keeps going and going and going and going, and you wish... To God, it would end, and you check your watch, and it's only been going for 20 minutes. <laughs> and you know you'll die. I can't stand it. Uh, time has stopped. Um, and in times like this, my brain will say, this is such an awful meeting, and you're having such a bad time. No one would blame you if you left early. This still goes on in my head. And it happened just two weeks ago. Just leave. These people are idiots. That was what my brain said. That's called desolation. That's called desolation. Consolation is followed by desolation is followed by consolation. It follows by desolation. The older I've gotten in recovery, where I want to live my life is in the broad middle. I don't mind a little up and I don't mind a little down, but I want to live in the middle. I don't want extreme up because it will be followed by extreme down. I want to be in the middle. So sometimes at a meeting, it's flat. Um, the worst form of desolation for me is arid extra dry. Why just stop going to meetings? I wasn't getting anything out of it. Why did you stop singing in the choir? I wasn't getting anything out of it. Why did you stop praying in the morning? I wasn't getting anything out of it. Now, I don't want to be... But notice how selfish that is. See, it's all about me. It's really wonderful if I get something out of a meeting. But also, it's really important for me to put something into the meeting. And I'm not just going to the meeting so I feel better. There are times I go to the meeting so I can help out. My current favorite thing to do is to, I think I mentioned this yesterday, is to mop the floor. A lot of people at meetings leak. They just leak. And you have to mop the floor, and I like to do that. And then I feel I'm doing something. Uh, straightening chairs is something I can do. Uh, taking out the garbage is something I can do. Uh, there, are, there are things. Uh, saying hello to newcomers. Uh, saying hello to visitors. I'm one of those people that travel a lot, and, and uh, when you have visitors, you can say hello. You can give the visitors your phone number. They'll never call, trust me. But you can give them their phone number, and you're of service, and you kind of make the world a little bit safer for those of us who have a little bit more anxiety than some others might have. 
Sometimes I get very anxious. Desolation. The spiritual writers, Teresa, John of the Cross, Ignatius will say this. When you're going through a dry patch, when the well runs dry, when things are flat, it is very important to do spiritual exercises. Especially then. Keep going to meetings. Maybe go to meetings in a different part of town. I've done that a couple times. But keep going to meetings. And don't leave early. Stay a little later. Get involved in service a little more. You hate ordinary meetings, then do H&I. Bring meetings to hospitals and prisons. There was a, one of my the couples I have loved uh, and were great mentors to me, Johnny and Phyllis. They lived out on the West Coast, and um, Phyllis was larger than life. She was, uh, we would call her an elaborate lady. Uh, Phyllis was large, and she was loud, and she was gorgeous, and she was strong, and she had a laugh that you could hear for about three blocks. And she only would have sex with a man if she was married to him, and she was married a lot. She was a, an aggressive lady, you know. And she had a, 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 a tendency to uh, grab guys and, and run off to the judge with them. Well, she gets sober. She, first marriage was during the Korean War, you know. Anyway, she gets sober. And uh, she goes to meetings, and, and she's, she's participating at meetings. Johnny was a very different guy, shorter than she, by a full head. Johnny was a tough guy. He ran with bad folks. Um... Occasionally, maybe a mob connection. Drugs are involved, guns. Um, there's a shootout in Mexico and some people are killed. One of those people killed was his wife. And he's arrested by the federales and put in prison because he, drug salesman, 10 other things. And he was involved with the um, uh, death of another and he was never going to be let out. This, he was a bad guy. In prison, you have interesting roommates. And Mexican prisons aren't nice like ours, you know. Uh, and you could get a lot of guys in a room. And over a couple of years, there were a lot of roommates. And Johnny uh, uh, finally got a roommate who was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And Johnny and this guy had a couple of conversations, and Johnny gets sober in prison. One of those guys. And they're never letting him out. But stuff happens, and things happen, and I never really got the whole story, whether this was legit or almost legit or not quite legit, but somehow he's out of prison, and he ends up on the San Diego border, and he gets up to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Long Beach, and Phyllis sees him, and she says, he was the cutest little guy I ever laid eyes on. And she grabbed him and ran off to a judge with him, and they get married. Well, everything's fine for a while. Evidently, it, everything's fine for a while. And then they had their first big fight. I think they'd been married six months or nine months. And Phyllis was going to do what she did. She, she would grab her suitcase and head for the next town. And she went to the back of the apartment, filled up a suitcase. She was heading for the door. And Johnny, who was shorter than she, at least by a head, was standing in front of the door with his arms crossed. And he would not let her out. And he said, Phyllis, we're going to learn how to do time. He had had some interesting roommates over the years in prison, and he learned something about give and take. She was shocked. And she was so, she was so shocked, she stayed. And when I met them, they were married over 25 years. 
good recovery, solid recovery. They left where they were normally going to meetings and they moved to a place because they were becoming older. They wanted a, a place that was a little slower and they moved into central California around Santa Maria, San Luis Obispo, Atascadero. It's kind of on the coast. It's, it, it's really backwater. It's, it, not a lot goes on there. And they hated local meetings. Here's the rule. Wherever you get sober is where they do it right. And you can go anywhere else, and it's shocking with how awful meetings are. They start at the wrong time. They're in the wrong place. They're reading from the wrong parts of the book. Who are these people? They do birthdays wrong. You just don't like meetings at all. I've had that experience on more than one occasion, but I had nowhere else to go, so I kept going to meetings even though I didn't like them. I got sober in non-clapping AA, and I went to a place where they clapped for everything. It was jarring. Every time they clapped, I hated it, and they clapped a lot. But I had nowhere else to go. Kept going, kept going, kept going. Anyway, so what Johnny and Phyllis decided to do, there was a prison in that town, Atascadero, Atascadero State Hospital. It's a prison for the criminally insane. And they had a special program there for mentally disordered sex offenders. These are the people nice prisons don't want. And Johnny and Phyllis said, well, are there meetings? Oh, none of the local folks wanted to bring an AA meeting in there because they were afraid of those people. And Johnny and Phyllis said, you know, if anybody needs an AA meeting, it's probably a group of mentally disordered sex offenders. And so they did the footwork. They contacted the warden. They did the stuff. And this older couple who's been sober a long time, they needed meetings that they could, they could associate with. Um, they started a big book study, and they would limit it to 12 people. They started another uh, uh, a meeting that was a step study. They limited it to 12 people. And then they had a Saturday night meeting that was open to anybody who wanted to come. And they did this for years. That's how I met them. Ordinary meetings weren't doing it for them. They needed to carry the message to stay sober, like Bill seeking out Bob, like Bill and Bob seeking out person number three, like the woman who was a social worker spotting that guy in line who was having a very bad day. To keep their own program alive, they had to be of service, and thus they did meetings. Prayer and meditation. Consolation. Desolation. Lots of us have experience with desolation. Lots of us have experiences with, with consolation. And this is what's very true. Consolation doesn't mean you're a saint. And desolation does not mean you're being punished. Everybody gets both. When you're in consolation, enjoy it, but know that it will pass. When you're in desolation, endure it and know that it will pass. When I'm in desolation, my tendency is to say my, I'm doing like 15 minutes of reading in the morning and it's dry, it's dry, it's dry. What, I, what I'll want to do is, is stop at 12. Or stop at 13. I've even wanted to stop at 14, and the brain just gets very active. What I don't want to do is go that whole 15 minutes of boredom. What the spiritual writers would say is this. When you're in desolation, make sure you do all 15 minutes. In fact, go 16. Stretch. Consolation is followed by desolation, is followed by consolation, is followed by desolation. And in a lot of this, we may have a sense of the presence of the Spirit. A lot of times you don't. A lot of times you're just there and things are fine. Sought through prayer and meditation. 
To seek God's will. Where does God lead us? Where does God lead us? Ultimately, what happens over time is when we meditate and pray, we can sense some deep yearnings and some deep longings. And we can pay attention to those and we can let those lead us. I talked to an old priest many, many years ago. He was in Sweden. He was an old German fellow. And he was a scholar. He really was a scholar. He was, and, and, and he was almost a stereotypical scholar. Very introverted and very quiet and very observant. But not a loud and flashy guy. And he was a scholar. And his area of expertise were the rune writing, the rune stones of, of the Scandinavian Norse mythology. I mean, this is as obscure as you can get, you know. But he was up there. And one, he loved doing that kind of work and research. But they also made him pastor of a parish, which was a crucifixion for him. Because he suddenly had to be very social and involved with all kinds of people. And he suffered in that job a lot. Probably some others suffered also. <laughs> but he did the job. And I talked to him uh, about yearnings and longings and God's will. And he said... If you can access your deepest yearnings and your deepest longings, that might be connected somehow to God's will for you. That's how he understood it. If you're an alcoholic or an addict or just a crazy person, it's hard to access our deep anythings because we are train wrecks. We have been so busy seeking immediate gratification or reacting to all the craziness around us, we have not paid attention to the deep yearnings of our heart or our soul. So it takes some time. In prayer and meditation, I do a little bit of digging and a little bit of research and a little bit of paying attention to that deeper part. I don't consider myself uh, deep at all. I've got some thoughtful friends, and I use a lot of their stuff. But at my worst, I just want to have a good time. I mean, I, I just want to have a good time. I want to be entertained. I don't want to be useful. I don't want to be thoughtful. I don't want to be deep. I just want to be delighted on occasion, you know, by some new stuff. So that's me at my worst. And, of course, if... My occasional entertainment and delight means that you die. Well, that's just the luck of the draw, you know. Uh, I've got to watch that stuff on a daily basis. In the morning, we ask for God's help. God help. In the Lord's Prayer, which is a pretty good prayer, um, one of the books I read two years ago, and I need to reread. Um, the author's name is Amy Jill Levine, L-E-V-I-N, maybe L-E-V-I-N-E, -E, and it's called A Misunderstood Jew. And she is a Jewish lady who is a, a Jewish a theologian, and she writes a book about how Jewish Jesus really was a misunderstood Jew. So it's, it's her understanding of, of a lot of the Jesus stuff. And, and she talks about the Lord's Prayer as being a very Jewish prayer and how it fits into the whole understanding of Jewish people and their relationship to God and their relationship to the earth and their relationship to each other. She said, just to start off with, uh, uh, in, in Roman times, the emperor Caesar... Caesar Augustus, Octavian, all of these, these, these people that ran the universe, they were called the father, the father of the empire, the father of the world, our father in Rome. So to pray our father in heaven was a way of flipping off the emperor. Our father in heaven. We don't need the emperor in Rome. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, honored be your name, honored be your power. You come as number one. 
Not the emperor, not the senate and the people of Rome, but God as we understand God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Uh, I have trouble with that because I want my will done. I have a long list of things that need to get done. My will be done. On earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give me enough for today. I have trouble with that too. I don't want enough for today. I want, I see I'm 63. I'd like enough for the next 35 years. And I'd like it in the bank today. I don't want any insecurity. I don't want any change. I don't want any doubt. I don't want any anxiety about my future. But instead, the prayer that Jesus taught was, give me enough for today. Enough bread, enough faith, enough hope, enough kindness. My experience is sometimes by the end of the day, that's all used up. By about nine o'clock, I don't believe in anything and I don't hope for anything and I hope you don't call. I'm done. And the next day, give me enough for today. Give me daily bread. Forgive us. Forgive us as we forgive others. There's an equation there. You forgive me like I forgive other people. You forgive me in the same way that I forgive others. That gets repeated a lot throughout Scripture, by the way. Those are some pretty good thoughts. And those are some pretty lofty goals. And sometimes they're real for me and sometimes I feel very far away from them. Amy Jill Levine has done a lot of public speaking about Jewish things, and she talks to Christian audiences a lot. They had her come to the Philippines several years ago, and it was a room full of Filipino Catholics, you know, with sisters and priests and bishops galore. And uh, there were 500 or 1,000 people there, and, and she got up in front of this whole audience of Filipinos. And she said, for how many people am I the first Jew you've ever met? Well, they all raised their hands. There was a great big crucifix next to her. And she said, actually, I'm the second Jewish person you've met. Here's the first. And, of course, they were all shocked because they thought Jesus was Filipino. Um, <laughs> it's like we really think he's an American, you know. I mean, we're so sure that he'd fit in with our way of doing things. Last point this morning, and then we can all go and do what we do. With prayer and meditation, we're asking God to transform us. I think that's the end result of a lot of prayer and meditation. Prayer and meditation is not so I am powerful. I ask for this and it gets done, you know. Oh God, rain down fire on these fools. Uh, that's drama and that's movies and that's nonsense. Prayer is rather an opportunity of my participating in God's renewal, restoration, and healing of me. I participate in the life of God with prayer and meditation. And slowly over time, we develop and grow. A lot of us come in here and, boy, we are brittle and narrow and rigid. Over time, we learn some flexibility. We learn some open-heartedness. We learn some open-mindedness. And we become better people. I think that's the work of God. That Muslim poet Rumi will talk about uh, uh, prayer as... And, and the work of God, he'll say, oh God, 
turn me into a well-baked loaf of bread to be shared. The well-baked bread. Well, to make bread, you have to mix things and make them wet and knead them and divide them and punch them and bake them. It's not easy making bread. But with prayer and meditation, that's the kind of stuff that happens to our darkest and deepest places. They get mixed, they get wet, they get stirred, they get kneaded, they get separated, they rise, they get punched, they bake. But you end up with some really good bread. Maybe not pretty, but wonderful. And that's a lot of the spiritual life. We become useful. We become practical. We talk about God as we understand God, and, and we get to change our ways of thinking. Some of us have some real bad old ideas. And bad old ideas don't go away just because they're bad old ideas. I sometimes have to actively recruit good new ideas about God. If God is full of wrath and punishment, maybe I can let go of that God. Find a different one. There's an Australian priest, I think his last name is Collins, and I read one of his books a year or two or three ago, and he's big on looking up at the stars and looking at the clear uh, night. Uh, and he says, you look up and you see all the stars and you see there's Orion and there's the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper and there's Scorpio and there's this and that. And he said, 5,000 years ago, people looked up and connected the dots and came up with all of these things. You could draw a different map. You could look up at the sky and connect the dots differently. In the Southern Hemisphere, they have the Southern Cross. Well, you could make it the Southern Box, you know. You could do it differently. You can understand differently. And he said one of the things that he was taught as a little boy was, God is love, God is love, God is love until you die. And then God is just. He said, what if God's even loving when we die? Will that change anything? I think it would. I think it would. Ask for God's help. I was talking to a lady who's full of fear. Full of fear. She was a church lady. Full of fear. She was so sure she was so evil and bad and wrong. I have a vivid recollection of the scene. We're sitting on a bench overlooking the Pacific. And she talked to me about how awful she was and what a bad person she was and how she could not do A, B, or C because it would be a sacrilege, it would be a sacrilege, and that was the word, sacrilege, sacrilege, sacrilege. Sacrilege is a really big sin. I, I, I couldn't, it's not, a, it's like blasphemy and sacrilege. Those aren't words Americans use very much. I'd have to look them up to find out what the exact definition is. Um, but it's not part of our culture. Maybe they should be, but they're not. Anyway, she kept using the word sacrilege. And I think basically her behavior made God mad. So I listened to her for about 10 minutes. And I said, can I give you a little feedback about something? She said, what? I said, you've used the word sacrilege more in the last 10 minutes than I have in the last 20 years, and I'm a priest. How crazy are you? I said. And she just thought she was being devout. I said, I think you're riddled with fear and you're crazy. You know, I think you need some new ideas. Well, she didn't know she could get any new ideas. I said, I think the entire world was explained to you by a very scary person when you were about nine years old. You're now 53. It's time for a better explanation. I hope she got one. You know? Boy, she was unhappy. We asked for help. And there are a couple of ways of doing it. One is just to say, help. <laughs> that works. 
serenity prayer, help. If you don't want to use words and you just want to use a visual, what I would suggest is you just get a white handkerchief. And every so often in large public areas, you surrender. Just stop the fight. So, wait, linen, you can get them by the dozen. And it's surprising how quickly they wear out if you use them enough. Uh, just stop the fight. Unconditional surrender. God, I don't know what to do next. It's a pretty good start. Instead of saying, oh God, let me tell you what I want you to do. Those are two different prayers. Um, in uh, December, first part of December at Grand Coteau at the St. Charles Spirituality Center over there will have a retreat for people in recovery. Five days of quiet and reflection and some talks and meetings. Part of the footwork of recovery is finding safe people and safe places and finding places where there's energy and oxygen and places that help us come to life. So do that. And if uh, the retreat in December works, I'd be happy to see you there. What do we do now, David? Join hands. You want to join hands in some kind of secret Cajun ritual? Oh, questions, answers. I'm full of opinions. Fire away. Yes, yes. Say again. When it says, oh, yeah, I've had that experience. Do what you can. Do what you can. One of my friends suicided. She shot herself drunk. And it, it, it just threw me. It was very hard for me to pray for the next 18 months. Do what you can. Maybe sometimes you just sit quietly or go for a long, slow walk. But don't pray as you should, pray as you can. And you do what's possible. And sometimes it's just not possible. I think God is smart enough to figure all that out. But when it's possible to pray again, pray. Yeah. So there. Oh, one. Yes. I don't know. Self-forgiveness. It's hard to forgive anybody. I keep score. You know? And I think forgiving, I, I, I think the act of forgiveness is an act of grace. And you get to be willing to forgive everybody on the list, and including yourself. And sometimes we have to, I, not sometimes, we have to ask God to help us forgive. It is the work of the Spirit. We don't forgive. We keep score. You know, why do you hate those people? We've always hated those people. You know, Palestinians, Israelis. Come on now, let's talk. You know, we've hated them for a thousand years. Well, uh, I have to be willing to change. It's grace. It's you ask God for help. There's a fine book on forgiveness by Lewis Smedes, S-M-E-D-E-S. And I think it's just called forgiveness. But Smead says, you know you have started to forgive somebody if you can wish them well. Even a little bit. If you can start to wish yourself well. Some of us loathe ourselves. We're so full of self-loathing. Willpower doesn't fix that. It's grace. 
you go to meetings and you go to meetings and, and you're such a jerk and you're such an idiot and you're so selfish and you smell bad and you go to meetings and you go to meetings and you see people who are happy when they see you walk in the room. And they know you. I think I'm crap. They think I'm interesting. One of us is wrong. You get to choose which one you want to believe. And I, when I was a couple of years sober, chose to believe you about me rather than believing me about me. We get to make some choices. And part of what I chose to believe was I have as much right to be here as any other self-destructive alcoholic. Come on in the room. We're glad to see you. you know? That helped. But it takes time. But ask God for help. Ask God for help. One of my... I think once we get clean and sober, the whole world opens up for us. It's hard to do any of this if someone's still using. You know, like if, if, if someone's doing a lot of crystal meth, they do not need a self-esteem class. You know, they need sobriety. We'll work on self-esteem later. You know, right now, don't kill yourself one day at a time. But that's big. Yes, yes. It's awareness, it's discipline, it's work, it's footwork. It's footwork. It's my participation in my own life and in my own recovery. And I participate by doing footwork. I don't participate by feelings that come and go and come and go and come and go. You know, I mean, there, one morning, um, this is within the last year or so, I woke up, I was, I was in my own bed, uh, on, flat on my back, and my, I woke up, boom, probably around between five and six. My first thought was, Tom, you're an idiot. My first thought. I don't know what I had been dreaming up to that point, but something. And I, and I, I knew if I lay, continue to lay there, it would just get worse. I had to do some footwork. I better get out of bed. I better shower. I better clean up. I better get on some clean clothes. I better get, and there's an 815 meeting not far from me. I could use a meeting this morning because I have, I'm, I'm still in bed and I've outsmarted myself. You know, I'm still in bed and I think I should be shot. Well, I could use some allies. And the allies aren't in here. You know, get to a meeting, say hello. And then the day can start. But I, I'm in great need of companions, friends, and allies, and I have to believe them rather than me. Yes, yes. Sounds reasonable to me. Some people I'm allergic to. And some people are crazy. You know? It's worse when they're cute and crazy, you know, because you can get in trouble. But I, I, life experience, I, 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 I get to make some choices about who I spend my time with and who I don't spend. Um, I've had that wonderful experience a couple times of being stalked. That's awful. You know, followed and looked at and little gifts left on the porch like, you know, a dead cat. Ah! 
Uh, it's very disturbing. It's very disturbing. And some people um, I don't have to spend time with. And I, I can block the phone. I can unplug this. I, I get to protect myself. I don't want to be invaded. I don't want to be molested. And I don't want to be stalked, you know. Chuck Chamberlain, who was sober a long time, he would say, I want to do this for fun and for free. And there's a bit of lightheartedness there I like a lot. You know, we, we, we give freely what we've been given. And, I, and, and as we are on the road of, of happy destiny, trudging, but happy destiny. Hello, I want to be alive and I want to be, I want to be glad to be alive. Um, there is a second or third century saint in the Greek church named Irenaeus which is the male form of the Irene, Irenaeus. And Irenaeus would say, uh, the glory of God is the person fully alive. Well, that's where I went ahead. And there was some people, I don't feel fully alive with them. They make me crazy. I stay away from them. Some people are a drink with two legs. I stay away from them too. Yeah, so welcome here. Yeah, yeah, please, please. Well, you're not done yet. Yeah. Yeah, you're not done yet. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. No, I, th I think that half-baked is independent of that, but it's the same idea. Similar source, yeah. Half-baked, half I'm, I'm undone. There's a lot I, I, I haven't finished up yet, that's for sure. Well, hooray. Thanks for coming. Um, Let's do whatever you Lafayetteers do here.